So if you could, please turn in your Bibles. It's always nice to hear pages turning. And Paul says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Let us pray. Father, uh, we stand before you, the holy God, uh, the one who is worthy of all praise, the one who is due all honor, all glory. Uh, Father, we pray that you uh, might be glorified as we uh, sit under your word. Uh, God, may you uh, tune our ears uh, to your words. May you transform our hearts that we might walk away this evening uh, just having a better understanding of how to relate to one another. Uh, God, continue to unite our hearts, uh, Lord, that we all might know and have a deeper understanding of us being in Christ. We pray in his most holy name, amen. So we live in a culture where individualism, it's ingrained into the, the fabric of society. Individualism, it's the habit or the principle of being independent and self-reliant. It's a social theory favoring freedom of action for individuals over the collective or state control. And after living in the Philippines for three years, we experienced what it was like to live in a collectivist culture. It's a society uh, like this where individuals make decisions that are best for the collective group. And it exposed in me some of my own individualistic tendencies, some of my sinful habits. And both worldviews can be quite unhealthy when lived out to their full potential. In a collectivist society, the government structure can become more important than the individual that the structure was originally created to protect. Now, in an individualistic society, the government structure is often disregarded, and people make decisions on what is best for them. Now, around the start of the Industrial Revolution, families that once functioned together, that, and the church was centered in the fabric of the society, it quickly changed as demand for factory workers separated men from their homes, and now you started having children being also pulled away into the factories. Men would work six days a week, and when they had their day of rest, they often were just purely focused in their own self-interest. And so the corporate gathering of the, fate of the saints became insignificant, and families and churches suffered. And as the years went on, Sunday schools were established to provide education to children that often labored in factories instead of staying in school. Sunday schools were set up for teaching literacy. They were set up for teaching writing. 
And eventually these Sunday schools would also move towards discipling children due to the fact that the families seldomly placed much value on family worship. Time would continue to move on. And into the 19th and 20th centuries, we would also see societies spring up, promoted the gathering of like-minded individuals with shared interests to promote social reform. All of this segmented of society divided families and even the church. And today, we still see this. It's often why we see so many different groups, different walls within our churches. We see the youth ministry, the senior ministry, the children's ministry, the college and career ministry, the mothers with preschool ministries, the ministries for empty nesters, marriage ministries, family ministries, and the list continues to go on and on. And now when we read about unity in Scripture, we have to stop and ask, what do we unify ourselves under? Race is not unifying us. As Aaron also said, social economic levels, how much wealth we've accumulated or the lack of our wealth does not unify us. Being conservative Republican or a liberal Democrat does not unify us. And sports doesn't unify us. Even if you're the fan of the greatest sports team in the world, the Philadelphia Eagles, doesn't unify us. See? There's no unity there. (laughs) Homeschool, public schools, private schools, none of these things unify us. So if none of these things unify us, then why are these often the topics that that we try and use to relate with one another? We desire to have meaningful relationships, But how do we do that with so much diversity in thought and culture? What is really worth unifying under? When we answer this question, it answers the question of how we as fellow church members should relate to one another. The Apostle Paul, he addresses this to the church of Philippi. He's writing to them while imprisoned in Rome. This would be one of three churches that he wrote to during his imprisonment. He wrote to the Ephesians, to the church of Colossae, and also to Philippi, and then he also wrote to Philemon uh, in regards to his runaway slave Onesimus. And there are common themes in Paul's letters, and even after listening to uh, Pastor Aaron preach, you're going to hear these same common themes in the text that I'm in. And as Paul goes through these themes, he's always making it abundantly clear that All throughout, it's the truth that Christians, local members of local churches, are in Christ and all joined together in the body of Christ. Now, Paul's letter to the church of Philippi, it's also marked by joy. Many have called this letter the epistle of joy. Paul, he was very connected to this church, and he had a great love for this congregation, this church was the first church that Paul had founded while he was in, in Europe. In Acts 16, we see Paul desiring to go to Asia, but three times the Holy Spirit prevented him from going. And he receives this vision, this call from the man from Macedonia. And as he goes into Philippi, he meets a woman of Lydia, a seller of purple. And she and her household, they are saved and baptized. Paul and Silas, they then meet uh, this this woman who is possessed with a spirit, uh, and this spirit is coming down upon Paul and, and just causing lots of problems. So Paul, 
being frustrated, annoyed by this spirit, he commands it to leave, and the slave girl and all the business that went along with this girl disappears. And these owners of this slave girl, they are fired up over this, and they press for them to be, for Paul and Silas to be dealt with, because they're disrupting the Roman way. Philippi It was a Roman colony city, and it was a central point of goods as they moved along this important road, the Via Ignatia. And Philippi was considered little Rome. And citizens of Philippi, they were full citizens, given full rights, property, ownership, and all. This would be important as we see what happens next to Paul and Silas. Because when the owners of the slave girl, when they seize Paul and Silas and they bring them in front of the rulers and magistrates, they are presented as Jews. And the crowds, they become riled. And these men are attacked with rods by the magistrates. They are finally shackled and placed inside of a jail. Paul and Silas, they decide that this would be a great time to do a hymn sing and a prayer night. And all the other prisoners, they're listening to them. And while that's happening, there's a great earthquake. The shackles, the bonds, they fall off, and the prison jailer, he wakes up from his sleep. To see all of this happening, and knowing that the punishment for having his prisoners escape is death. He's about to take his own life. I guess that would be a better way to die than the Roman death that awaited him. And as he was about to kill himself with his own sword, Paul yells out to him, Don't harm yourself! We are all here. The jailer, faced with the reality of all that just happened, he falls down with fear and asks them, what must I do to be saved? And they tell him to to believe in the Lord Jesus, and you and your household will be saved. He's baptized, and after cleaning up the men, they rejoice with him in his home, and they have fellowship together with his new brothers. The magistrates, they send police to the men, but Paul wants an apology because of this Roman citizenship. He is doing this to protect the future of the Philippian church. When Paul returns to the house of Lydia, he encourages them with his testimony. And Paul is encouraged to know that this new little church was dedicated to praying for them. There's a reliance on one another as they labor for the gospel. Some will labor in chains and others upon their knees. Here, though, we see the interdependence that has been created by being in the body of Christ together. The church of Philippi will become a place of great support for Paul. This church labored labored in material support for Paul. And they made sure that Paul was helped in all ways as he went and made disciples and planted churches. I'm standing here in this sanctuary as a pastor now of a church that was a supporting church for us as we proclaim the gospel in the Philippines. Redeemer Baptist Church was one of our first ever churches that partnered with us financially. And they helped us to, to be able to, for us to go. This partnership that we had with both Redeemer and BioView, it stirred us in a great desire to be with you. The members of both churches have brought us such great joy over the years, and I am thankful that we can be unified by the Spirit through the sufficient Word. My desire is to be partnered with more like-minded churches where we could stay focused on preaching the gospel to all who have not heard here on the Mississippi Gulf Coast. As Paul writes this letter 
to the saints, the fellow members of the church, the elders and the deacons. That's how he starts this letter. He's starting this with the theme of unity. He's starting this letter with the theme of joy. Joy and unity must be marks for all in the church. Both the members and the leadership of the church, no one is excused from needing to be exhorted to remain joyful or unified. The words that Paul uses in this letter, they're very intimate. When I read his heartfelt statements, I often wish that I can convey such beautiful words even to my own bride. In verse 3, Paul says that he thanks God for his great remembrance of them all. He prays for them with joy. This joy he has is due to their partnership in the gospel from all that we stated in chapter 16 of Acts till now. He wants to remind them to stay patient and that God will complete this process of sanctification in them till glory. In verse 7, he says that he holds them in his heart because they are co-partakers of grace. They have partnered with him in his imprisonment and with his defense of the gospel. He says that he yearns for them all with the affection of Christ. He desires for them to abound more and more in love, knowledge, and all discernment. Church, imagine if we were able to abound more in love. If we gained more knowledge of God's Word. And by having this great love and knowledge, we were guided by the Holy Spirit to interact within the church with real discernment. I would venture to say that a church that struggled to be unified would lack love for another. The church would be anything but a reflection of the affections of Christ. Members would be self-serving, desiring to have their own needs met. There would be a disdain or a reluctancy to grow in the knowledge of God's Word because it would bring a place of conviction. Many individuals in the church get caught in the weeds of their own interests. They push away godly counsel to hold on to their idols of tradition. Or they doubt God who promised completion in Christ and start to do things according to their own understanding. This is a sure recipe for the future collapse of a church. Our churches must be marked, set apart by our love for one another, our dedication to the Word, and the fruit of that is making wise, discernible decisions that move the church towards making disciples and seeing future churches planted. Paul doesn't want this beautiful church that he has such a great affection for to become a disunified church that was lacking joy. Paul, he steps in like a general to lead his infantry into battle with strong language as we now dig into the text in verse 27. He says, only let your manner of life, the way you live, the, NSA, the NASB says that the way you conduct yourself. This means to live as a citizen, not of Rome, but of the eternal kingdom, which we have been granted citizenship. These Philippians with full rights of citizenship of Rome, would have understood well what Paul was conveying to them. Let it be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Colossians 1.10 says, 
so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. We should know that we are, wor- that we are working in a manner that is worthy by bearing the fruit of the Spirit and increasing in knowledge of God. This helps us to affirm our calling. Paul also would have that same exhortation in Ephesians 1, or Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, where he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, because there is one body one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So, now, when we drop our kids off to stay with someone, we often tell our children, before we say goodbye to them, we say, now, I want to get a good report when I come and pick you up. This is to remind our children that while they are temporarily away from us, we still have a desire to see them behave in a manner that is honoring to the Lord. I think Paul probably felt like this gathering of believers was like a child to him that he watched blossom into a church. What does Paul want to hear that they are doing? He wants to hear that they are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. The language of standing firm, it's it's military language. Paul wants the members of this church to be standing post in a position of defense, ready to defend the kingdom. The Praetorian Guard during this time was an, an elite unit of the Imperial Roman Army whose members they served as personal bodyguards, intelligence for the Roman emperors. And during the era of the Roman Republic, the Praetorians served as small escort for high-ranking officials, such as senators or provincial governors like procurators, and also serving as bodyguards. So now as they are serving uh, for Emperor Augustus, they are also being Uh, his main guard, his main security detail. They are pretty much like what we know today as like the Secret Service. These men would stand post and defend those who represented the kingdom. They would stand firm in their post even to death. This is what standing firm looks like. This is not a command to the individual, but to the church. We should have the same spirit and desire to stand firm together. We should stand firm for the Lord. We should stand firm for His truth. We should have a shared confession that is drafted upon the essentials of the faith. Our shared confession should help to keep us accountable for standing for God's truth. God's Word fills us with hope as we meditate upon His promises. In Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 18, and if we go even to the beginning of chapter 4, verse 1, it says, I have received, sorry, 
For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body to the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, in light of that, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. We can stand firm, we can preserve in light of the justification that we have been given. We should stand firm also against the attacks of the enemy. We see this in Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. We're covering a lot of Scripture this evening. I want Scripture to be able to be the loudest thing that speaks this evening. Ephesians 6, 10 through 20 says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. I believe that the idea of one spirit is having a reasonable defense together. We have camaraderie as we have common goals. We have common tasks, a common enemy, but most importantly, a common Lord. The idea of one spirit, it conveys attitude and posture and reason within the community as we stand together having one spirit for the Lord and against the real enemy, not my brother in the pew, not my pastor that made changes in the church that disrupted my comfortable tradition, not the Lord who is working all things for his glory. No, join together brothers and sisters, and be unified in the battle against the real enemy that desires to steal, kill, and destroy. Be unified together in one spirit like Paul. Remind each other of this great citizenship that we have together. We have been given so much even though we are deserved nothing. But judgment and condemnation, we worship a merciful God. Paul, he he perfectly attaches the phrase one mind to the phrase one spirit. 
He wants them to understand that this isn't just about the actions within the community, but that this sinks down into their very souls. They should be unified at the core. We see true interdependence when individuals are standing firm together because of the truth of God's Word that has transformed their hearts and minds. We are one mind as we renew our minds, meditating upon God's Word. Our actions become in line with God's good and perfect will. This is real transformational living in community. So Paul says, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, standing firm was to give the view of, the mili- of, a, of a military soldier where striving is the Greek word, and I might butcher this, son athleo. And this was to have the reader think of the athlete. This isn't a singular athlete competing in a sport, but this is a sport where they are together on a team, striving together, pushing hard towards the goal of winning and doing this by great sacrifice. We strive together not to be social justice warriors, to be the banner of church mercy ministry, to lead local people to great emotional experiences. We must strive as a church to proclaim the true gospel, which leads to saving faith. Paul, he would highlight this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1-11. through 11. Paul says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That He was buried. That He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Most of whom are still alive. Though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James. Then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely unborn born he appeared also to me for i am the least of the apostles unworthy to be called an apostle because i persecuted the church of god but by the grace of god i am what i am and his grace towards me was not in vain on the contrary i worked harder than any of them though it was not i but the grace of god that is with me whether then it was i or they so we preach and so you believed Now, when we preach the gospel, there will be opponents. Paul felt this, he saw this, he experienced this, and you might as well. But Paul says, not be frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Paul, he's encouraging the members of this church to not run away from the task of proclaiming the gospel because of fearing men. Remember, Paul is encouraging them to be bold, not because he was ignorant of the possible sufferings that they might have to endure, but because he endured that same suffering. He was stripped of his clothes, beaten with rods, imprisoned. Paul remembers that a church was birthed out of this suffering that he endured. 
women, they often go through great labor pains during the labor and delivery process. I was amazed at how much pain uh, my wife Sonia had to endure as she delivered Noah, um, our first son. But I was even more amazed at how she approached than having Caleb. Uh, she approached it with joy and excitement. Because knowing the amount of pain she once had to endure this, but the excitement of having another son, it far outweighed the temporary struggle in labor. I think we should approach evangelism much the same way. We should endure temporary trials that are tied to sharing the gospel for the reward of doing the will of God by striving to make disciples. These trials, opponents, should, they should knit us more closely together. It should unify us. Verse 29, he says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Paul, he, he lived this out clearly, and we could see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 30. I often go here when I start to grumble or complain about my current circumstances, when I am stressed out, when I feel the weight of everything crashing in. Uh, this was a, a difficult week for our family. Uh, we were trying to move into our home, and our dog's legs completely gave out on him, blew out two main ligaments, wound up having to rush our dog to Mandeville to get emergency surgery as we are setting up to get into this new house. And as I'm trying to write seminary papers and do my primary task, which is be a pastor here, um, there was a lot happening, and, uh, and, and it's very easy to get overwhelmed by these things. And it's help for, helpful for me to look at texts like this, kind of have better perspective. Paul says, are, are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I am talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, Danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardships through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is this daily pressure of me, my anxiety for all of the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. He continues on in chapter 12. If we look at verse 7, he says, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, 
that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul, through his suffering, he was concerned with the church. Oftentimes when we go through suffering, difficulties, we become resentful often of the church. We start to look for others to be the source of meeting our needs instead of the one who is able to remind us that his grace is sufficient. In our weakness, his strength is revealed. Suffering should unify us, and usually when we see divisions in the midst of suffering, it is evidence that we have turned back to looking at our needs more than the concern of the church. That's why Paul, he wanted them to know that he was engaged in the same conflict. It's quite unifying to know that we are in this altogether. When I preach the gospel to you, I am preaching a gospel that I equally need. If you have struggled with unity in the church, humble yourselves. Confess your sin, your lack of love, your selfish desires, your self-idolization, your unhealthy individualism. Confess all of this. Repent of this behavior. Those that are divisive in the church, they must be disciplined to bring correction and restoration of unity within the church. Look to Christ who perfectly modeled this humility. We see this in Philippians 2. I think it's addressed really well as he says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death upon the cross." Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's no better application than this. If you model this humility, this love, the way you relate with one another within the church will be marked by unity. It will be marked by love. This is something to be joyful about. Amen?
We'll end this time with Psalm 133. Really think about these words. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It's like the precious oil on the, on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing. Life forevermore. Let's pray. You, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, who worked unified in creation, making the universe out of nothing, you also who worked to bring about atonement for our sin, offering up Christ to satisfy justice in light of our great sin. You worked unified in redemption and you continue to sanctify us. Your church, may we also be unified as we grow in the great knowledge of who you are, the perfect triune God. May we be churches that are marked by our love for one another and unified in purpose. May we have one confession and always worship you, the one true and living God. Amen.